we have a house full of these artistic kids who, we, who uh, growing up, there was always lots of drawing going on, lots of pictures, lots of cartoons, lots of illustrations, lots of paper, uh, you know, uh, and uh, perhaps you can relate to that. You've got maybe had little ones who'd always drawing pictures. And, you know, it's always amazing as a parent when they draw you this picture and then they give it to you and they say, this is for you. And you're like, yeah. Right? Or maybe you're a grandparent and the grandchild comes to you and says, this is for you. And you're like, yeah. And you put it on the fridge and you're so proud of that, that artwork, that work. It's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. They just sit down and they think to themselves, you know, mom and dad would love this. Or, or uh, aunt so-and-so or uncle so-and-so would love this. Or a grandma or a grandpa would love this. And that's the, the motivation for their work, not love. The work is an overflow from that love. But imagine how tragic it would be. Imagine how tragic it would be if the little child is sitting there trepidatiously with that little crayon thinking to themselves, maybe this will make them love me. Maybe, maybe if I do a good enough job, this will make them accept me. Maybe if my work is good enough, they'll feed me. They'll bless me. See, something went from being beautiful art to this tragic scenario. Because instead of it flowing from love, it was being done in an effort to earn love. That's the problem in Galatia. That's the false teaching that came into the church that said Jesus plus your work saves you. Jesus plus the life you're living. Christ's obedience plus your obedience is what makes you okay with God. And Paul said, time out, stop. That's a false gospel. And that's why we have the letter to the Galatians. This morning our text is from Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 11 through to 26. And Paul, in this section of the letter, he's categorically separating... The law of God from the promise of God. That's what we're going to look at today. The false teachers were blending everything together. It's like, it's like they were just cooking their theology in the same pot. We're going to throw the law in there. We're going to throw the gospel in there. We're going to throw in grace and works. And we're going to put it all together and say, if you, just, if you can keep God's law, he'll be happy with you. And by doing that, they erased entirely the grace of Christ. And so Paul comes along and he says, listen, I have to categorically separate faith and works. I have to categorically separate the promise of God from the law of God. And now I have to actually give you their job descriptions because the false teachers didn't understand the job descriptions of the law or the gospel. So they mixed up the job descriptions of both. And so Paul gives us some great insight this morning, which is going to be really great news for us because we're all God's children, coloring pictures with our lives and our relationships and our vocations. And those pictures that we're coloring with our, with our worship of, of uh, the lives that we live is not for earning, but for imitating and enjoying freely. So let's pick it up at Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 11. <clears throat> now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to all the nations, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now to give a human example, brothers... Even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. 
Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years after, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to the one in whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming of faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. This is God's word. Now as we unpack this text, we're going to ask three questions. How was God's law misunderstood? How is God's law properly understood? And how do we relate to God's law as those who are actually under God's grace? So here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that united to Christ, we live under grace, so all our obedience is from pleasure, not for payment. That's what Paul is trying to teach in this section. So these are the three questions we're going to ask, like I said uh, just a moment ago. How is God's law misunderstood? How is it properly understood? And how do we live in light of it, given that we are under grace? So firstly, how is it misunderstood? Paul's challenging their misunderstanding. And so he actually starts, it's interesting, he starts with what the law isn't. The reason he starts with what the law isn't is because the false teachers are thoroughly confusing the church. So he starts out, you can see it there in verse 18. They're trying to make law and grace both and. And they're trying to make, you know... um, faith and works both and and paul is saying no no no, it's not both and it's either or so paul starts talking about inheritance and he says that inheritance is based on promise not performance but you and i as children of god we have an inheritance and our inheritance is secure and it's assured based on god's promise not our performance that's good news that's the only thing in your life that works that way stop performing in your relationships and let me know how your friendships work out Stop performing in your romances and let me know how those romances turn out. Stop performing in your marriages and let me know how those marriages turn out. Stop performing at work and let me know how your vocation works out. Stop performing on campus and let me know how that university degree is coming. Nothing in your life works like this. This is why the gospel is such good news for you. This is the only thing in your entire week that's finished, that you get to come and sit and rest and enjoy and allow that renewal by the power of the Spirit to do something in your heart as you hear this. So Paul comes and he says, I have to start with the, what the law isn't because you've screwed it up and you think the law is actually good news and it's not good news uh, at all. And I'll get to that in just a minute. <clears throat> so to receive a promise, you need belief. But to receive a wage, you need work. And Paul is trying to say that the gospel is a promise, 
which is all about belief. Uh, you're not earning something through your work. And some of you remember that famous passage, which is in Romans 6.23, that says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Notice that your wage is met with God's gift. And Paul's reiterating that again here. So the thing with inheritance, Paul is trying to, trying to he says, I'll give you a, a human example, brothers. So he starts talking about inheritance. Now, if I had said to you, hey, after the service today, I want to introduce you to my great uncle, you know, John. And John is a billionaire. And John said to me, I'm so wealthy. Paul, I want you to go find somebody that I can give some of my wealth to. So I say to you after the service, come with me. And I want to introduce you to John. And he's going to meet you and shake your hand. And, and he's going to say, Paul, is this the one you want me to give my inheritance to? And I'm going to give, I'm going to give you $10 million. That would be a promise. And all you would, there's no work involved. It would just be you believing what I'm telling you. And your inheritance would be based on your belief. The only way for you not to get the inheritance would be to look at me and say, I don't believe you, and then you don't come with me. There's no work involved. It's just, it's based on belief. It's a promise based on belief. But I'll give you another scenario. And this is more what the false teachers were bringing in Galatia. I say to you after the service, I want to introduce you to my uh, relative John. He's a billionaire. And all you have to do to get the inheritance is take care of him in his old age. You know, make sure he goes to the bathroom when he needs to. Make sure you feed him. Check on him. I need you to set your alarm a couple times a night. Come in, wake up in the middle of the night, go in, make sure he's okay. And then you get $10 million. See, that's what they were bringing into Galatia. Instead of it being based on a promise, rooted in belief, they converted Christianity into, well, now it's actually all about your work. Now it's not a promise at all. You've erased the promise and you've said, your work is now validating this thing. So Paul uses, you see it there in verse 18, the word inheritance, and then he contrasts the inheritance to Abraham, which is in Christ, and for all of us whose faith is in him, is by promise, not work. It's by belief. This is good news for for you and I. And so what that reveals is that the purpose of the law and the purpose of the gospel are mutually exclusive. They have two different job descriptions. If you look back in verse 15, Paul uses the word covenant, talks about the covenant to Abraham, the promise of Abraham. The word in the Greek is diatheke, which means it's the same word you use for your will and testament. And so the reason why he does that is because he's, what he's trying to say is, if God makes a promise, he, it's a promise. He's not changing it based on conditions. If, if you make a will, if, if there's a mother and she's got two daughters and she's making a will... And the one daughter is a very hard worker, and the other daughter is not really a very hard worker. But she says, you're both going to get the same reward. I'm dividing my inheritance 50-50, and each of my daughters gets the same reward. But then during the course of their life, the hardworking daughter, she ends up writing a book, and it ends up doing really well, and it's a New York bestseller, and she's a multimillionaire. When that mother dies and that lawyer goes to read the will, that performance doesn't change the promise. You can't look at the promise and say, well, you did so, you worked so hard, and this one didn't seem to work so hard, so we're actually going to now change this promise based on the work. You see that? That's what Paul is doing. He's going, you've messed up the gospel. You've erased it entirely by adding in the necessity of your obedience to Christ's obedience to be okay with God. Christ is sufficient. He's enough. Our obedience is is for a completely different reason. And so Paul is is making this uh, separation here. And conversely, if you've got that other daughter in the story who, let's say that she's, you know, not really doing much and she's just kind of lives her whole life kind of trying to make ends meet. 
The very successful daughter can't go before the lawyer and say, I worked way harder than her. I deserve way more than her. Do you see how this works? Paul says you've got, it's an either or. It's promise or it's performance. It's grace or it's works. Jesus was sufficient or he wasn't. And the good news for you and I is we live our days to live our lives to God's glory because Christ has done it all. This is the beauty of the gospel. Of the, that grace is, means, <clears throat> pardon me, that the, the good news of the gospel is not hinging uh, on us at all. And so how he appeals to that, again in verse uh, 18, is he goes back to Abraham. And that, that little reference to Abraham is actually in Genesis 15. And if you read the story, it's a very gruesome story. Because it's a, it's a, it's a covenant story in Genesis 18, uh, or 15, what Paul is referring to with Abraham. He says, it's a promise. Abraham was given a promise. Because if you go back and read Genesis 15, what happened was they did this very ancient practice. It was called a suzerain treaty or a vassal treaty. The kings in the ancient world did it all the time. You could read about it in Jewish antiquity where they would take animals, cut them in half, spill their blood, put half the animal there, half the animal there. It was totally gruesome. And then each king from the neighboring countries would walk through the pieces. And it was their way of saying, if you don't keep your end of the bargain, what happened to these animals is happening to you, pal. That's pretty, that's pretty gruesome, but that's what it was. And so when God told Abraham in Genesis 15 to cut the animals in half, Abraham knew it was coming. He's saying, God's going to make a promise, I'm going to make a promise, and if I don't keep up my end, it's going to be game over. But guess what God did, if you read Genesis 15? He causes Abraham to sleep. And God passes through the pieces by himself. Which means, God put all of the weight and the promise on that covenant of salvation being kept not on Abraham's obedience but on his own on his own back that through Christ's obedience it would come God said if you can't keep my law it's not it's not your blood that's going to be shed in the end it's going to be my own blood that I'm going to shed because I already know you can't keep this covenant it has to be a one-way covenant of grace and love And so what the false teachers did in Galatia, which we can again do today, is if you bring back the idea of keeping God's law to be okay with God, as opposed to keeping God's law because you simply love God, okay, if you bring it in in earning, then what happens is you take a one-way covenant of grace based on a promise, and you turn it into a two-way contract of works based on performance. It's totally different. So that's why Paul, Paul goes back to that promise. And he says, hey, this is a promise. And he, and he insists on it. And so if we believe, which is the problem in Galatia, if we believe that it's our continual obedience to God's law that's ensuring our salvation, then the one who's saving you is you. And that's dead wrong. It's dead wrong. That's why Paul said in chapter 1, verse 7, that's a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that's crazy. So that's how they misunderstood God's law. So how is God's law properly understood? Paul gives us the reason in verse 19. If you look down at verse 19, you're going to see that he says the law came because of transgression. I mean, the law came because of sin. In other words, the law isn't good news. The law is good. The law of God is good. But it's not good news. The law came to give bad news. That's why it came. 
I'm going to borrow from John Stott. He's an Anglican preacher, theologian, and author. And John Stott speaks about God's law this way. He says, The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off of man's respectability, to disclose what was really underneath, a sinful heart under the judgment of God. And we must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel, because no one appreciates the gospel until the law has first revealed his heart. It's only against the blackness of the night sky that the stars begin to appear, and it's only against the dark background of God's judgment that the gospel of God's grace shines bright. See, the law came to show us that our hearts are dark. Maybe you're here today, and you're not a a person of Christian faith, and you're on a journey, and you have questions. But even if you're a person of different worldview or of non-faith or, or you're exploring, you know, and, and, and you have questions, you have a code. I mean, everybody lives by the belief of, of certain, uh, they have certain morals. And everybody knows that at some point in their life, they don't live up to their own morals, their own standards. If you're a person, regardless of your worldview, whether you're a person of faith or non-faith, if you say, yes, it's important to you know, lo- love our neighbor. Yes, it's important to care for the poor. We all agree with that. But we also all agree that there's times where we don't do that. There's times where we do the opposite of that. What God's law does is God's law lifts the lid and shows us what's in our hearts. That's why the law came. What the, what the, what the religious leaders were doing was they were saying, good news, the law is here. <laughs> now we know what we can do to save ourselves. Well, that's horrifying news. You No, that's not why the law was given at all. And so, in verse 21, Paul says, the law didn't come to give life. Right? So, logic says the law came to, to, bring de- to bring death, to bring our awareness of death. The law of God isn't given to bring life. It was, it was brought to show us that on our own, apart from God, the end is death. So the law was bad news. That's why the, God's grace comes to give us this great good news. In verse 22, if you look at it, Paul says, The scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Some of your translations say, the scripture imprisoned the whole world under sin. In the the Greek, the the word everything, it's panta. It's it's everything. It's everything you can see. That's bad news. Do you see that? He says the scripture, the law, it brought everything under sin. Why? What, What is going on? What is this? It's because the law shows us the answer can't be rule-keeping. The answer must be rescue. It must be rescue. And this is the beauty of the gospel for you and I, is it's precisely that. Without being shown what God requires, and, being, and without being shown the impossibility of giving what God requires, we can't marvel at the fact that he has provided everything he requires. In, in Christ. And so the law, that's the job of the law, is to show us that. I'll borrow a line from my uh, professor of New Testament theology. His name is John O'Linebaugh. And, and John O used to say, the gospel is a word that's spoken at the gravesite of your dead Adam. In other words, the gospel just bounces off the ears of people that don't, that, that, that don't see their own, their own darkness and their need for God. So we can't just bypass the law and bypass sin and just talk about grace. Now, that would be a lot easier, you know, quite frankly, as a preacher. I mean, no, no preacher wants to get up on Sunday morning in 2017 and be like, let's talk about sin. Okay, let's talk about how we can't keep God's law. Let's talk about how we need God's grace. 
What's easier is to say, I'm not going to talk about sin. I'm not going to tell the church that, uh, you know, uh, that they can't actually keep God's law to them. We're just going to leave all that out, and we're just going to say, you know, just love everybody. We're all good. You're trying good. You're trying better this week. Great. See, that what we've done is we've erased the radicality of what Christ has given us because we're totally blind to the fact of what God's law requires us. The false teachers in Galatia were, were making a mess of this by combining these two things together. And so what Paul does is he says, okay, I'm going to give you two more pictures to show you, you know, the, I want to give you two more pictures to show you how strong God's law is and how much our need for God's grace is. So the pictures he gives is a guardian and a tutor, a prison guard and a tutor. Those are the two things we read. You read them there in verse uh, uh, 23 and in 24. So the prison guard, it says all scriptures under sin. So now you've got this prison guard, prison guards aren't there to deliver you. They're there to remind you you need deliverance. That's the job of a prison guard, right? And so Paul says the law is like the prison guard. It shows us I need rescue. I need somebody to do what I can't do for myself, which is precisely what Christ did. So if we leave the service today, and you're on your way home with your family, and you're driving home, and you're listening to some music, and you crank it up to 11, and you get all excited, and you start driving a little too fast, and you see some flashing lights. None of you are going to go, oh good, the law is here. <laughs> it's the law, kids, 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 it's the law. Everybody, stop talking, kids. Listen, learning moment, okay? <laughs> this is going to be fantastic. Hello, officer. Yes, it's so good to see you. Please, tell me how good I'm doing. Got it? Paul says the law, is a, the law is a prison guard. Oh, yes, please check, do a vehicle check. That would be wonderful. Yeah, I, boy, I hope my sticker's okay and all my lights are working. And, like, the, the law, the scrutiny of the law is not there to give us good news. The law is good, but the law exists to show us when we're not good. And so, Paul says it's like a prison guard, Right? And then the second image is, it says it's like a tutor. Your, your translation may see a guardian or a tutor. The word in the Greek is paedagogos. And the reason I'm telling you that is because it's a very specific word Paul uses. The paedagogos of the ancient world, um, they were harsh tutors. So their, their job was strict law enforcement. It wasn't a warm relationship uh, they were there to enforce morality, and there was a reward-punishment relationship. It was like being under house arrest. If you had a paedagogos, that meant you don't get up and go and play outside unless they tell you you can, and then they go with you. Like, they never left your side. Okay? Now, my daughter, Rebecca, she does some tutoring. She's got some students. That's not how she tutors. Right? We have a different understanding of tutoring. If Rebecca's tutoring a student, and the student says, excuse me for a minute, I have to use the washroom... Rebecca doesn't hit the kid with a stick in the hand and say, you'll go to the washroom when I say you can go to the washroom. But that's the ancient world pedagogos. That's the law. Right? And so the reason why he gives us this picture is because it was very strict. And if, if you misunderstand the law, then you relate to God like God is your heavenly pedagogos. Am I okay? I'm not sure. Did I do enough? Where do I stand? How many more old ladies do I need to walk across the street? How was my Bible reading? How, much, how many hours did I spend this week in prayer? Did I teach my children the word of God? Did I crack a Bible? I'm not sure. Oh my gosh, it was a really busy week. I actually went 0 for 7. I didn't do any of those things. And I wonder if God's okay with me. 
Do you see, if you misunderstand the law, all of a sudden you're coloring pictures and you're handing them up to heaven and you're hoping that God's going to accept your art. Rather than understanding what the purpose of the law was so that we live under the beauty of God's grace, that it renews our heart, that we propel and desire the law to guide us without living under the burden of us not keeping it, which of course none of us are keeping it. It's Christ who kept it perfectly for us. So that's why Paul uses that very specific term. He doesn't want the church relating to their heavenly pedagogos. They've got a heavenly father. And so that's why Paul goes there. So properly understood, what is the purpose of that tutor? You see where, where he goes with it. It's that they, they move up into maturity so that they don't need the tutor. That's the purpose of the law. You move, you move into maturity so that you don't uh, need this tutor. So God gave us his law to show us our need for his grace. Redemption history, if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, here's what you don't find. You don't find a God who's constantly looking to get better performance out of his kids. You find a God who's constantly trying to get his promise to his kids. And it's when we sit in the radicality of that picture of our Heavenly Father that we, we, we come out from underneath the tutorage of the law. We don't need the law because, we're, because now we're free to live to his glory. We desire very much his, his guidance. And when I'm talking about not needing the law, I'm talking about specifically the old ceremonial mosaic worship system of the Old Testament. That's what I'm talking about. So, which leads us to the final thing, which is how do we relate then to God's law as those who are under grace? Right? Because the real question, which we would have, which is the same question I had in Galatia, is if Jesus did it all, if Christ has paid for my sin, past, present, future, if it's his performance, not my performance, that my salvation is riding on, where's the motivation? Why should I live to God's glory? Why should I care about the Ten Commandments and say, you know, I'm going to allow these things to guide my life? I mean, why should I worship God? Why should I do anything? Right? That's a great question. And Paul knew that question was coming, right? which is why he gets to verse 24 and he says, listen, I'll, I'll tell you why. Christ came so that we would no longer need the law, so that we would die to the law as a picture of, salva- of our salvation because we couldn't keep it. So Christ kept it. So the picture in verse 24 is a child who comes to maturity and doesn't need to be coerced into obedience because they've internalized the values. They don't need the pedagogos anymore because now they've internalized the value and they're just living out of the value. We're free from the law because the Spirit of God is doing something in you and reforming your heart so that you want to, you want to come to God in prayer and have his, enjoy his peace and you want to go to his scripture and allow it to inform you and guide you and have you teach your children. You desire it because it's no longer a system of salvation. It isn't earning anything. Whether you were in prayer for one hour, ten hours, or no hours this week, you have not added or taken away from your standing with God. The reason you go to prayer is all about enjoying peace and enjoying God. How much you read your scripture this week, if I was to you know, say, okay, after the service, I'm going to stand at the door, and before you leave, you have to tell me how many hours you spent reading your Bible this week and meditating on the scripture before you can go, right? And then all your hearts shrivel and they go on your feet, and, well, I was kind of busy, and normally I do this, but you're not adding or taking away from your standing with God. The whole purpose you would do that is to enjoy him, is to revel in what you've been given, is to teach his, his word to your children so that they then go through life free in their heart 
from worshiping these insignificant little things that could never satisfy them, chasing after these chronic mini-messiahs that will always disappoint them, putting all their hope in something that's so fragile a phone call could take it away, the economy could take it away, a doctor's visit could take it away. We can't live in that kind of fragility. That's why we come to God's law and teach it to our children. And so what Paul says is it's like not needing the tutor. You've internalized the values. That's where the job description of God's law stops and the job description of God's grace begins. Because God's law can guide us and show us who God is and show us what God expects and show us who we are in relation to that and show us how to flourish. God's law can do all those things. But God's law is powerless to make us want to do it. That's what God's grace does. That's why we come and we worship and we rest and we have the scriptures ministered to our hearts. That's why we come and we confess our sin before God and we sing to his glory and we eat and we drink at the Lord's table. He does that renewal. It's beautiful. It's like I think about this, this transition into maturity. Like when I was a teenager, I don't know how many times between the ages of 13 and 19 I was asked to clean my room. A lot. Okay, my room as a teenager looked like a play-it-again sports had an ugly baby with a fast food franchise, and then that ugly baby crawled into my room, and the ugly baby exploded all over my room. That's what my room looked like. But now, I'm a tidy person. I like when things are put away, and I'm a tidy person. But what happened? Was it that 99 times, be clean your room, 100 times, clean your room, Nah, 101 times the law comes. Clean your room. Aha! No! It's, you can't pour the gasoline of the law on the fire of our sin and expect something to become good. The law has a different role. It's because in my maturity, I started to internalize the value and I began to look at the command of tidiness and thought, this is a good thing. I don't want bacteria in my house. I should probably, you know, not leave pizza boxes under my bed. Right? As a grown adult, you internalize the value of the law. As a teenager, you're kind of like, I don't really see why this matters to me. So verse 24 is Paul saying, you're going to actually internalize and desire the wisdom of God. You know, This is what grace does. But keeping, keeping the law, and when I say this, keeping the law, I'm talking about loving and worshiping God, not worshiping things, and loving our neighbors as much as we love ourselves. Our desire to live that kind of a life, that's, that's going to come with the maturity of God's grace of breaking down the, the idolatrous wall around our heart labeled me first that causes me to live my own life like I'm God. I need all of my time, all of my money, all of my resources, all of my everything for me because I'm building my empire. The gospel frees us out of that. So now we're able to live these loving and freeing lives. Where now our vocation is worship to him. The way we relate to our spouses and our children and we engage in the city is now worship to him because that's the, the process of what God's law does in all of us. And so that's why when Jesus summarizes the law in Matthew 22, and he says to love God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, and love our neighbors as ourselves, you see, the reason why we can read that and not have our hearts sink is because the good news is we've been rescued from the impossibility of keeping that, of keeping God's law, but God's grace is actually reforming us to desire God's law. So it's fitting that Jesus was a carpenter, because his whole ministry, in case you haven't noticed, which continues now by the power of the Spirit, is a renovation ministry. He's all about renos, right? Your maturity, your sanctification is not a do-it-yourself project. And it's not, do, it's not DIY. 
He is renewing, restoring, reorienting, recalibrating constantly. That's why we come and worship. Because living our lives, we live our lives, I talk about, I talk about this with the worship team, just life is like a liturgy. It's like there, there's things that are forming our hearts and our minds all the time in our life. I read a book by uh, Dr. James K. Smith who talks about this. It's that we come to wor- worship so that we are reformed, so that we come and we rest and we stop and God's word speaks and it reforms our hearts and it reforms our minds and it renews us and it reorients us. And it actually helps us see our lives in the grand scheme of God's big story, that this life here is not all that there is. And it recalibrates and it does beautiful things in us. And so our guilt was met by God's grace and it's propelling this life of gratitude for us. And so I close with this. In the same way that a small child is coloring a picture excitedly and can't wait to give it to their, you know, their parent. That's a picture of our relationship with God. That's a picture of our relationship now and how we relate in our vocations and our recreation. Because the grace of God is doing its work, its mighty work in you, church. The grace of God is doing its work and it's maturing us so that we internalize the value of living to his glory. That we don't need the pedagogos of the law. And we've died to it as a system of salvation. Christ has done it all. And so now we're free. And maybe you're here and you thought you're new to the Christian faith and you thought, well, I thought Christian faith was about doing things, good things, so God would be happy with you. And I need you to know that. That is not true. I need you to know this morning that if, if, if that's the space you've been in where you thought, well, I think Christian, Christianity is about doing all of these religious things so God is happy. That's not true. God is not needy. God doesn't need things. God created the universe from nothing. Ex nihilo. He didn't need anything. He created everything in grace. And then he wanted to give everything that he was to, everything, to, to everybody who you know, wasn't God, by grace. Our sin has messed it up, and now our trajectory is that he is restoring everything by his grace. God isn't needy. He's a fulfiller. And so, God isn't deficient in himself. He's giving of himself. That's the beauty of the gospel. That Christ's life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension provided everything God requires. And so under grace, which is you and me, we walk out those doors today, and you go to business, you do your thing tomorrow, you're raising your kids tomorrow, you're doing family, you're doing marriage, you're doing hockey practice, whatever it is you're up to. Under grace, our obedience is not for payment. It is from pleasure. Let's pray.